0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Bunyan of Brooklyn podcast. I am your host, Tony Miano. Thanks for joining me. Of course, during this uh, podcast series, we are reading from Pastor Ichabod Spencer's wonderful classic work, A Pastor's Sketches, Conversations with Anxious Souls Concerning the Way of Salvation. This book is available wherever uh, books are sold, Amazon, Christian Books, and the like. Uh, Today we're going to be reading three sketches, three stories. Uh, The first two are very short. The third is uh, not all that long. All three, of course, are wonderful stories. And the stories are titled, The Holy Spirit Resisted, The Heart Promised, and Fixed Despair. Fixed Despair. The third story really impacted me as I was reading it yesterday and making my notes. In fact, in God's providence, as I would go out later on in the afternoon yesterday uh, for a time of ministry with my son-in-law, Donnie, I had an opportunity to apply some of what I gleaned from this story, Fixed Despair. And so, uh, a little different from our usual uh, podcasts, I'm going to actually show you the interaction I had with a man named Mike just yesterday on the streets. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy that. I'm really hoping that it encourages you. All right, so let's get started. We're going to begin reading uh, our first story today, The Holy Spirit Resisted. As I was riding through a village in which I was almost a stranger, I saw a number of young people... Entering a schoolhouse, the clergyman of the place was standing by the door. He beckoned to me to stop. He told me he had appointed a meeting for inquiry and was surprised to find so many assembling. He wished me to go in and have some conversation with those who were there. I asked to be excused as I was on my way to fulfill an engagement where I must be punctually at the time. He would not excuse me. I must stop if it were only for five minutes. He conducted me into a room where were fifteen young women. Say something, said he, to every one of them. I did, though I was not in the room ten minutes. At the same time, he was conversing with some young men in another apartment. As I passed from one to another in this rapid conversation, I came to a young lady about twenty years of age, whose countenance indicated great agitation of feeling. Said I, do you feel that you are a sinner, unreconciled to God? Yes, I do. I am a lost sinner. Can you save yourself? None but Christ can save me. Why then don't you come to him? He is willing to save you. He loves to save sinners like you. Indeed, I do not know. My heart is hard and wicked, and I am afraid I never shall be saved. She burst into tears, which she had seemed anxious to and suppressed, uh, and buried her face in her handkerchief. How long have you been in such deep trouble of mind for three weeks, said she sobbing aloud. Then for three weeks, you have done nothing but resist the Holy spirit. I left her and passed to the next individual. In a few minutes, I left the room and went on my way. I'm going to pause here for, for just a moment. Um, he only had about ten minutes to say something important to fifteen young women <laughs> that's a that's quite a quite a remarkable scene i I would imagine but there's something to glean from this you know there are times when we are engaged in conversations with people uh maybe it's a coworker maybe it's um, someone at a grocery store someone in uh maybe the person who's uh uh, working the check stand uh, maybe the postal worker behind the counter uh, maybe it's a stranger on the street maybe you, you just have but a few moments with someone well it's important uh, it's important to impart truth to that person uh, even if you don't have much time uh, if something prevents you from proclaiming the entirety of the gospel to someone don't say nothing at all don't miss the opportunity don't say to yourself well i can't communicate the whole gospel so i'm not going to say anything to this person no no impart whatever truth you can Uh, even if it's just saying something to them like look i I want you to ponder this today the word of god says that uh, jesus is the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father but through him Uh, or maybe say something like do you realize the bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god or, or maybe, uh, my friend, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. What we earn for our sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Or maybe, uh, you know, the Bible says it's by grace we're saved through faith. Did you know that? The Bible says it's by grace we're saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's a gift from God, not as a result of works, my friends, so that no one may boast. Maybe you only have time to quote a verse of scripture. Maybe you only have enough time to say, uh, you know, God has made a way for you to be forgiven of your sins. Do you, do you know what that is? So don't miss opportunities to impart truth because you don't think you'll have the time to impart the whole truth to a person. You're, you're scattering seed, right? And maybe others will scatter uh after you come, maybe someone will come and water the seed that you scattered. And uh, maybe that's fallen on good soil. So, uh, when in doubt, say something. If you doubt you have enough time, don't pass on that opportunity. Don't pass on that person in front of you. Say something that might impact them for eternity. All right. Back to Pastor Spencer. He said I left her and passed to the next individual. In a few minutes I left the room and went on my way. The next week, as I was riding in a carriage alone, a few miles from the same village, I saw before me a young gentleman and a young lady in a carriage riding in an opposite direction, and I was just meeting them. She appeared to be trying to induce him to stop, and he did not seem to understand what she wanted. She finally took hold of the reins herself, stopped the horse, and motioning to me, I reined up also, and we sat in our carriages face to face and close together. That was true. That was true, sir, she said. What was true, said I, for I did not know who she was, though I recognized her face as one that I had seen. What you told me at the inquiry meeting that morning, that I had done nothing for three weeks but resist the Holy Spirit. That expression pierced my very heart. I did not believe it. I thought I was yielding to the Holy Spirit because I was anxious and had begun to seek the Lord, and I thought you was most cruel to speak to me so. I did not believe you, but I could not get the idea out of my mind. It clung to me night and day. For three weeks you have done nothing but resist the Holy Spirit. That expression opened my eyes, and I could not let you pass, pass us here without stopping to tell you how much I thank you for it. She said this very rapidly, her eyes swimming with tears and her countenance beaming with joy. Her whole heart seemed to be embarked on what she was saying. By this time, I, was, I fully recognized her and, and recollected my former hurried interview with her. For a few minutes, I conversed with her as we sat in our carriages. She hoped that God had given her a new heart. She was at peace, not only, but full of joy. Oh, I am happy said she i am so happy you opened my eyes you told me the truth i thought you was a cruel man i wanted you to explain yourself but you would not stop to hear me as i reflected on what you said i hated you with all my heart but the words would come up for three weeks you have done nothing but resist the holy spirit it seems to me now that if you had said anything else or made any explanation as i wanted you to I should not have been led to Christ. I can never thank you enough for the words which showed me my very heart. I have not seen her since. I learned that a few weeks afterwards she made a public profession of religion. Her pastor told me that he esteemed her highly as one of the most intelligent and accomplished of his flock. She belonged to a very excellent family. She possessed a discriminating mind and did she err in thinking that for three weeks she had done nothing but resist the Holy Spirit? And that's, that's it. That's the, that's the extent of that first story. The Holy Spirit resisted. And again, what I, what I gleaned from this and what I want to encourage you with is that it's important to impart hard truths but with compassion. We have to say hard things to people. If if we see error in what they're believing, we have to call them on the error. If uh, they are saying something that is contrary to word to the word of God, we have to call them on that. If we if we see sin in someone's life, we have to call it sin, and sometimes we have to be blunt about it because we want them to understand. But we must always communicate those hard truths with respect with love, with compassion. And I think many Christians hesitate to do that because they're afraid of the response. They're afraid that they might offend. They're afraid that they might damage relationship. Well, what I've often said over the years uh, in that regard is that if you're so concerned about damaging a relationship that you will not speak the truth in love to that person with whom you are in relationship, then your friendship is more important than the soul of your friend. You're actually being selfish. You don't want to damage the relationship because of what it will do to you. You're more concerned about the impact the loss of relationship will have on you than what the spiritual impact of telling your lost friend or loved one might be on them. You are more concerned about keeping the friendship than about where your friend will spend eternity. Repent of that. Repent of that. Don't shy away from telling people hard things. Do it lovingly. Do it kindly. Show great compassion when you're doing it. But don't hesitate to tell people the truth and don't worry about the response. All right, our second story is The Heart Promised. The Heart Promised. One of the most perplexing and, to me, distressing instances of continued and ineffectual seriousness that I have ever known was that of a young woman who seemed to me to be as near perfection as any person that I have ever known. She was about 20 years old, of good mind and more than ordinary intelligence. Everybody that knew her loved her. She had been religiously educated and was of a very sober and thoughtful disposition, though uniformly cheerful. She became interested on the subject of religion and attended the meeting for religious inquiry week after week. In personal conversation with her at her house, I aimed repeatedly to remove all her difficulties of mind and explain to her the way of salvation. She appeared to understand and believe all that was said to her her convictions of sin seemed to be clear and deep that she could be justified only through faith in christ she had no doubt of his power and readiness to save her if she would come to him she had not a doubt she deeply felt that she needed the aids of the holy spirit and seemed to realize with peculiar solemnity that the holy spirit was striving with her her seriousness continued for weeks And while others around her were led to rejoicing in the Lord, her mind remained without peace or hope. I exercised all my skill to ascertain her hindrances, to show her the state that she was in, and to lead her to Christ. It was all in vain. I had said everything to her that I could think of which I supposed adapted to her state of mind. I had referred her to numerous passages in the Bible and explained them to her most carefully. She had no objections to make. She heard all I said to her with apparent docility and manifest thankfulness, and yet she said she was as far from the kingdom of heaven as ever. Her heart was unmoved and at enmity against God. Just at this period I accidentally met her one morning in the street. I was sorry to meet her, for I thought I must say something to her. I had said all, and I knew not what to say. Offering her my hand, I asked, Sarah, have you given your heart to God? No, sir, she said tremulously. Don't you think you ought to? I know I ought to. Do you mean to do so? Yes, sir, I do. Don't you think you ought to do it today? Yes, I do. Then will you? Yes, I will, she said emphatically. Goodbye, said I, and instantly left her a day or two afterwards i saw her and she had wanted very much to see me she wanted to tell me how she felt and how she had been affected she said that she had never felt so before that her mind was at rest that she now loved god that his character and law appeared to her most excellent worthy of all administration and love that she could now trust in the blood of christ and wondered she had never done it before she partly hoped, though she scarcely dared to hope, that her heart was renewed by the Holy Spirit. But, said she, after I made you that promise, I would have given all the world if I had not made it. I hunted hunted after you to take back my promise, but I could not find you. The thought of it haunted me. It distressed me beyond measure. I, I wondered at myself for being so rash as to make it but I dared not break it. I had a dreadful struggle with myself to give up all into the hands of God, but I am glad of it now. Then you think, said I, that you have done something very acceptable to him? Oh no, not I. I have done nothing. But I hope God has done something for me. All I could do was to tell him I could do nothing and pray him to help me. She united with the church and yet honors her profession. So there's a little more here in the story, but I want to, I want to pause here for a second. He, uh, Spencer was very wise in what he asked. Then you think, said I, that you have done something very acceptable to him? He was checking, checking to see in whom or in what she was ultimately putting her trust. And I have opportunity to do this almost every day when I'm out on the streets. Most of the people I talk to on the streets would profess to some uh, some religion, usually Christianity. Most people I talk to would say that they either grew up in the church or that they're Christians or that they believe in Jesus. And then I'll often ask the question, uh, "If you were to die today, if you were to die today," and I always add the parenthetical, that's certainly not what I want for you. But if you were to die today and you were standing before God and God asked you, why, why should he allow you into his kingdom? What would you say? Some people are quick with their answers. Some people ponder for some time. Many people say, I don't know. Some people will say, well, you know, I've gone to church all my life. Um, I'm a pretty good person. Uh, I, uh, I give to the church. I help out people when I can. I, I try to be generous. No one's perfect. They always have that caveat, you know, so they don't puff themselves up too much. Nobody's perfect, but you know, I, I'm a pretty good guy. Uh, I'm a good, I'm a good woman. And so in a sense, Pastor Spencer asked Sarah this question. Do you think that you've done something very acceptable to him? Her response, Sarah's response was wonderful. Oh no, not I, I have done nothing, but I hope God has done something for me. All I can do was to tell him I could do nothing and pray him to help me. Uh, A wonderful indication in someone's testimony is that they express the reality that there is nothing they could do to save themselves. That there is nothing good about them. There is nothing they could do to commend themselves to God. Uh, That there was not some kind of synergistic, cooperative effort between God and the person. Hey, God did his part. Jesus died on the cross for me. But I got to be a good person. Got to go to church. Got to clean up my act. Got to get off drugs. And I'm working on all of that. And so I think God's going to accept me. No. No. Uh, As it has been once said, the only thing we bring to salvation is the sin That makes it necessary. So I I liked what Spencer asked. And of course, I love Sarah's response, giving all glory to Christ for her salvation. All right, let's finish up the story. Spencer writes, this is the only case in which I have ever led any person to make such a promise. I doubt the propriety of doing it. I did not really intend it in this instance. I was led into it at the time by the nature of our conversation and the solicitude I felt for one to whom I knew not what to say. The resolutions of an unconverted sinner are one thing, and the operations of the Holy Spirit are quite another. They may coincide indeed, and if such resolutions are made in the spirit of a humble reliance on God, they may be beneficial. I will arise and go to my Father was no improper purpose but if such resolutions are made in self-reliance they are rash and will seldom be redeemed sarah seems to have found herself insufficient for keeping her promise all i could do was to tell uh, him i could do nothing and pray him to help me she said If anyone thinks that he has turned to God without the special aids of the Holy Spirit, it is probable that he has never turned to God at all. Certainly, he cannot sing. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy. I've met many people on streets, college campuses in particular, uh, who... Who boast in the fact that they were once Christians, uh, as if that is some kind of resume stuffer that makes their atheism the more credible because, you know, I came out of the church as if they got smarter and (laughs) chose instead the foolishness of of atheism. Uh, No one, no one has ever left Christ who was truly in Christ. No one has ever rejected Christ who was truly in Christ. No one has ever deconstructed their Christian faith if they once truly had Christian faith because, because God loses not a one of those whom He saves. He keeps. Uh, as the apostle paul wrote for i am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of god which is in christ jesus our lord nothing can separate the christian from christ including the christian the person who says that they were once a Christian but are no longer a Christian, was never a Christian. Now, a college student who's taken a semester of philosophy, one of the most dangerous people on the planet, not dangerous to anyone else, but dangerous to themselves, will say, Ah! The No Scotsman fallacy! Uh, The idea of... uh, Someone declaring, well, you're not really a, a Scotsman because you don't do this, or you don't do that, or you're not from Scotland. That's a no Scotsman fallacy. Uh, and uh, kids who have a semester of philosophy will, will like to make that argument, oh, see, that's the Scotsman philosophy. You're telling me I was never really a Christian. I'm telling you I was a Christian. But uh, but you're saying I wasn't a true Christian. That's the That's the no true Scotsman fallacy. Here's the problem with that. The no true Scotsman fallacy doesn't apply to the assertion that someone who claimed to be a Christian but now is not is not a real Christian. And here's the reason why. God has provided a perfect, holy, written standard for who and what a Christian is in his word. And so I have an objective truth upon which to compare the claims of the person in front of me. So it's not fallacious for me to say to someone who says, oh, I was once a Christian, but now I'm an atheist. And for me to declare, you were never a Christian. It's not fallacious for me to do that, because God has given us a standard in his word as to how one is saved, as to who will be saved, as to how one is kept saved by God. So if anyone ever... Cries out to you, oh the no, no true Scotsman fallacy! You're telling me I was never a Christian. Simply pointing to the reality that you're not, you're not, uh, you're not making your assertion that they were never a Christian based on some subjective standard, but the objective, infallible, inerrant standard of God's holy word. Hopefully, that's helpful to you. The last of our three stories for this edition of the Bunyan of Brooklyn podcast is titled Fixed Despair There was in my congregation at one time a woman about 40 years of age who was a subject of wonder to me She was one of the most intelligent and well-educated of the people she had been brought up from her childhood in the family of a clergyman as his daughter She was very attentive to the observance of the Sabbath she was never absent from her seat in the church as the mother of the family she had few equals everybody respected her but she was not a member of the church and whenever i had endeavored to call her attention to the subject of religion she was so reserved that i could not even conjecture what was her particular state of mind i was told that she never spoke to anyone in respect to her religious feelings my ignorance of her views and feelings led me to be in doubt of what to say to her i felt that i was groping in the dark every time i attempted to converse with her Sometimes I suspected that she secretly indulged a hope in Christ, though she told me to the contrary. At other times I suspected that she was relying upon her perfectly moral life for salvation, though she denied this also. I could not persuade her to seek the Lord, nor could I ascertain what was her hindrance. And I was the more surprised at this on account of the profound respect which she appeared to have for religion and her deep solemnity whenever I spoke to her on the subject. I had hoped that by conversation with her I might get a glimpse of her heart, that the peculiarity of her state of mind would casually become manifest, and thus I should learn what it would be best for me to say to her. But she was too reserved for this. After several trials, I was still in the dark. I did not know what she thought or felt, what it was that kept her from attending to her salvation. I called upon her one day and frankly told her my embarrassment about her. I mentioned her uniform taciturnity, my motive in aiming to overcome it, my supposition that some error kept her from religion, and my inability even to conjecture what it was. I said to her that I had not a doubt there was something locked up in her own mind, which she never whispered to me. She seemed very much surprised at this declaration, and I instantly asked her if it was not so. With some reluctance, she confessed that it was. And then, after no little urgency, she said she would tell me the whole not on her own account, but that her case might not discourage me from aiming to lead others christ she then said that her day of grace was past; that she had had every possible opportunity for salvation that every possible motive had a thousand times been presented to her that she had lived through three remarkable revivals of religion in which many of her companions had been led to christ that she had had again and again attempted to work out her salvation but all in vain i know my day is gone by said she i am given over the holy spirit has left me she spake this in a decided manner solemnly and coldly unmoved as a rock it surprised me and as i was silently thinking for a moment how i could best remove her error she went on to say that she had never before now mentioned this for a number of years that she fully believed in the reality of experimental religion "'that she believed all that she had ever heard me preach "'except when, once or twice, I had spoken of religious despair, "'that, as her day of grace was past, "'she did not wish to have her mind troubled "'on the subject of religion at all, "'and asked me to say nothing more to her about it. "'I inquired how long she had been in this state of mind. "'She told me she had known for eighteen years.' that there was no salvation for her. I inquired if she ever prayed. She said she had not prayed in 18 years. I inquired if she did not feel unhappy to be in such a state. She she said she seldom thought of it. It would do no good, and she never intended to think of it again. I asked, do you believe the heart is deceitful? Yes, I know it. It may be, then, that your wicked heart has deceived you in respect to your day of grace. This idea appeared to stagger her for a moment, but she replied, No, I am not deceived. Yes, you are. No, I am not. Nothing can save me now, and I do not wish to have my mind disturbed by any more thought about it. Why do you attend church? Only to set a good example. I believe in religion as firmly as you do and wish my children to be Christians. Do you pray for them? No, prayer for me would not be heard. Madam, said I emphatically, you are in error. I know you are, and I can convince you of it. If you will hear me, lend me your mind and speak frankly to me, and tell me the grounds on which your despair rests, I will convince you that you are entirely deceived." cannot do it now it would take too long you have so long been in this state and have forfeited your error by so many other deceptions that it will take some days to demolish the defenses you have heaved up around you but i can do it if your mind will adhere to one thing once proved to you if when a thing is fixed your mind will let it stay fixed and not just have the same doubt after the demonstration that it had before it. I am perfectly certain you may be led to see your error. May I come to see you again about it. I want to pause here for just a second. Spencer emphatically states, but I can do it. He emphatically tells her that he is perfectly certain that, that he can lead this woman away from her error. Now, where did Spencer's confidence lie? Well, I don't believe it lied in his own theological prowess. I do not believe it, uh, it lied in his intellect, in his, uh, in his thoughts of his own abilities to change this woman's mind. I believe Spencer wholeheartedly believed and was convinced by and all of his confidence in was in the power of the truth the power of god's word and i think we're going to see that let's continue uh, this lady says i'd rather not see you it will do no good it will only make me miserable i did not intend to tell you how i felt But when you found out that something was concealed, I would not deceive you. But I wish to hear no more about it. My day of grace is past forever. No, it is not, said I, most emphatically. Your deceitful heart has only seized on that idea as an excuse for not coming to repentance. Allow me at least to come and see you. Another moment of pause. Much of what defiant unbelievers, uh, much of their reasons for rejecting Christ are nothing but excuses. Really, they are nothing but excuses. When you are talking to an unbeliever, when you're going back and forth with someone about uh, the reasons they say they do not believe, it's important to understand that much of what they are putting forward are only excuses for their own innate sinful desire not to repent they don't want god to be the authority that he is in their lives and so they will come up with all kinds of excuses they will talk about how they were mistreated as a child in the church they will talk about how a a pastor lied to them they will talk about how their their school teachers seem more convincing they will They'll talk about many different things, the, the disappointments in their lives, and and uh or or that, you know what, God hasn't chosen me. And they'll come up with all kinds of dis- uh, different reasons to dodge the reality that they're making excuses for their sin. The lady continues, I had rather not, sir. Madam, you must. I cannot leave you so. I will not. I love you too well to do it. I'm going to pause again. We must love so much, too much, to quit trying to convince people of their state before God. To convince people that the wrath of God abides upon them. To convince people that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father but through them and to through him rather, and to convince them that they are not beyond salvation. Look, we do not know who the elect are. We have to come to every conversation. We have to engage with every person in front of us as if we know with certainty that they are numbered among the elect. But, uh, but we don't have that information. And so because we don't, we, we ought not be the hyper-Calvinist who says, well, we shouldn't do any evangelism at all because God has already determined who he will save. No, while it's true that God has determined from eternity past who is numbered among the elect, we need to plead with every person to repent and believe. We need to fight for every single soul because, again, we don't know who God has numbered among the elect. And we must love people so much that we're not going to quit when they tell us to. I've heard this too many times to count. Um, uh, as people are driving by, as I'm standing on the corner with the cross, go home, get a job. We don't. Nobody wants to hear you. Or when I'm open air preaching outside the farmer's market or uh, at the University of Iowa or some other place. Just stop. No one wants to hear you. I don't want to hear what you have to say. Often my response is, I love you too much to stop. I love you too much not to be here to warn you about the wrath of God to come and appoint you to Christ. I love you too much to give you what you want. And, uh, and we should think that way. That should be our heart. Uh, as we engage people, especially people who say, I don't want to hear it. We need to press. We need to press because we're not fighting with people. We are literally fighting for the souls of people. And God is a God of means and it is the gospel by which he will bring his elect to repentance and faith in Christ. So again, back to what uh, Pastor Spencer just said. I thank you, my dear lady. You have greatly gratified me. You will yet believe what I have said to you. I know you can be saved. And you know me well enough to know that I am not the man to make such strong declarations rashly. All I ask is the opportunity to convince you I will see you tomorrow. In all this conversation, she seemed seemed as unmoved as a stone. She did not shed a tear or heave a sigh. She could talk about the certainty of her eternal misery as if her heart were ice. The next day, when I called, I asked to know the reasons or evidences on which her dreadful opinion rested. She told me one after another, referring to many texts of Scripture, and did it with a coldness which made me shudder. Of the certainty of her eternal enmity to God and her eternal misery, she reasoned so coolly that I almost felt I was listening to words from the lips of a corpse perceiving that she would probably decline seeing me again and wanting time to study her case more carefully i suddenly took leave of her i had expected the old affair of the unpardonable sin or sin against the holy ghost but i found a far more difficult matter i called again evidently she was sorry to see me but i gave her no time to make any objections. I desired her to listen to me and not yield her assent to what I was going to say. If she could reasonably avoid it, that is. And then I uh, I took up her evidences of being forever given over of God, beginning with the weakest of them, and in about an hour had disposed of several, in such a way that she acknowledged her deception in respect to them. But, says she... There are stronger ones left. We will attend to them afterward, said I. But remember, you have found your mistake in respect to some. Therefore, it is possible that you may be mistaken in respect to others. This remark was the first thing that appeared to stagger her old opinion. She said nothing, but evidently her confidence was shaken i saw her time after time about once a week for five or six weeks examined all her reasons for thinking her day of grace gone by except one and convinced her that they were all false evidently she had become intellectually interested there was but one point left she had never in all this time expressed a wish to see me or asked me to call again I now called her attention summarily to the ground we had gone over and how she had found all her refuges of lies swept away, save one, as she had herself acknowledged. And if that were gone, she would think her salvation possible, and then asked her if she wished to see me again. I I like how Spencer described her excuses. He described them as refuges of lies, refuges of lies. And that's where the unbeliever runs. The unbeliever takes refuge in their own self-deception. They take refuge in the lies that they've told themselves, the lies they come to believe, the lies that become their quote-unquote truth. Refuges of lies. I think I'm probably going to use that. She replied that her opinion was unchanged, but that she should like to hear what I had to say uh, about this remaining point, which, as she truly said, I had avoided so often. I called the next day. I took up the one point left, this last item which doomed her to despair, and as I examined it, reasoning with her, and asking if she thought me right from step to step as I went on, the intensity of her thought became painful to me. She gazed upon me with unutterable astonishment. Her former cold and stone-like appearance was gone. Her bosom heaved with emotion, and her whole frame seemed agitated with a new kind of life. To see the dreadful fixedness of despair melting away from her countenance, and the dawnings of inceptive hope taking its place, was a new and strange thing to me. It looked like putting life into a corpse. As my explanation and argument drew towards the close, she turned pale as death. She almost ceased to breathe, and when I had finished, and in answer to my question. She confessed that she had no reason to believe her day of grace was past. Instantly, she looked as if she had waked up in a new world. Then tears gushed from her eyes in a torrent. She clasped her hands, sprung from her seat, and walked back and forth across the room, exclaiming, I can be saved! I can be saved! I can be saved! She was so entirely overcome that I thought she would faint. Or her reason give way. I dared not leave her. I said nothing, but remained till she became more composed and took my leave with a silent bow. Uh, again, this is so wonderful here. And we see this over and over again in Spencer's accounts of his interactions with people. When Spencer sees or senses that the Holy Spirit is at work, that Conviction is upon a person that uh, the light of grace is, is being shown on the person and they're recognizing it. He doesn't ruin those moments with his own voice. He stops. And he lets, again, as if he could ever hinder, he can't. But he lets the Holy Spirit do his work. And he doesn't get out of the way. Once he sees the Holy Spirit bringing about conviction for sin and righteousness and judgment, once he sees the Holy Spirit leading someone into all truth, he steps back and he watches. And I would think worships in his heart and his mind. And he has the wisdom and the discernment to wait until an appropriate time to interject something further. He doesn't muddy a beautiful moment. He doesn't declarify an epiphany, a spiritual epiphany that someone is reaching with his own sentiments, with his own words. He stands back, he gets out of the way, and he watches the Holy Spirit work. That's a great discipline. That's a great discipline, I think, that few evangelists have. That is a discipline I need to continue to work on in my own life. And I see that. I see this in Spencer over and over again. Spencer continues. The next Sunday evening, she was at the inquiry meeting. She appeared like other awakened sinners, nothing remarkable about her, except her very manifest determination to seek the Lord with all her heart. In about three weeks, she became one of the happiest creatures in hope that I ever saw. She afterwards united with the church and yet lives a happy and decided believer. Listen carefully now. The gospel is addressed to hope, Spencer writes. Let me say that again. The gospel is addressed to hope. Despair must always be deaf to it. Entire despair is incompatible with seeking God. Despair cannot pray. The last effort of the devil seems to be to drive sinners to despair. We are saved by hope, says the apostle. Few errors are harmless. None are safe. Truth is never injurious. And I can have no sympathy with those ministers who think an error may do an impenitent sinner good. Tricks are not truth. I, I read these final words. I, I circled I circled them in the book. <laughs> I circled them in the book there at the bottom of the page. Um, I, I took a picture of it. I shared this statement with my pastors. It impacted me a great deal. Despair must always be deaf to hope. Hope and despair cannot inhabit the same place at the same time. And where is hope to be found? not to be found in legislation it's not to be found in education it's most certainly not to be found in medication it is only found in reconciliation the reconciliation of man to god through faith in jesus christ the gospel is addressed to hope and the answer for despair all despair despair of any kind is found in the hope of christ it is the antidote. It is the cure. And anything less than hope in Jesus Christ is nothing more than a band-aid for mortal wounds. Few errors are harmless. None are safe. Truth is never injurious. And sometimes we have to love the person in front of us enough to speak hard truths, to call sin, sin, To call lies believed lies. To call self-deception for what it is. To call idolatry for what it is. And call people to repent because we love them. And because we have the cure. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I read these words yesterday. They brought me to tears for many reasons. And again, I couldn't wait to get on the phone with my pastors, to, to talk to them about what I read, and to share with them this quote. And it was a wonderful time of fellowship with my pastors. Well, within a couple of hours, I find myself on the corner of Harrison Locust with my beloved son in the faith, son-in-law, uh, my son in, in every way but, uh, but physical birth, my son Donnie. We were out on the corner ministering together, fellowshipping together. I love my son. I've got two son-in-laws. Both of them are sons to me. And uh, Donnie being one of them. And Donnie has an extraordinary heart for evangelism. And so Donnie and I were, were out on the street. And in a great demonstration of God's providence and grace, he allowed these words to come to life in a conversation with a man named Mike. Now, I have known Mike. Uh, I don't know Mike really well, uh, but we have spent more time together as of late. But I I first met Mike several years ago. Uh, Mike is the father of uh, a son who, as a teenager, nine years ago, disappeared and hasn't been seen since. Take a look at the story. This is Local 4 News at 5.
1: Local 4 News is following the cases of missing people around the Quad Cities in our special reports, Vanished QC The Missing. A man from Davenport has been worried about his son for nine years now. This is the story of 15-year-old Frederick Workman. He disappeared in August of 2013. The teenager got into some trouble and was living in a youth facility in Des Moines. His father, Michael, visited him once a week for family therapy sessions. Michael says every time he visited, Frederick talked about taking off from there.
2: You know, with his disability, because he you know, had a learning disability, with his disability, if he, if he was ever angry, anybody you never leave him unattended at all never and the day that he uh, disappeared was they let him outside all by himself and they went out to check on him and he was gone local for crime reporter Linda Cook spoke with
1: Michael Workman about his son's disappearance well Linda what happened after Frederick's father found out his son was
2: missing
3: he left work right away and he went to Des Moines to try to look for his son
2: I was handing flyers out at the state fair gate by myself i didn't know how to get anything set up to where we can do a a group search i didn't know i didn't know how to do any of that so i just you know i did what i did and you know the way i knew how where any child should be is at home because they look for us as guidance and they look for us for protection and we need to be there
1: All right, how did it go for Michael Workman? Did he find any clues?
3: No, you know, his son didn't have a cell phone, so police really had little to go on either. Um, No one from the family has heard heard from him now. His grandmother, his siblings, and Michael has not heard from him either.
1: Where does the case stand now after nine years? Mm.
3: It remains open, and Michael remains in touch with the U.S. Marshals. They've established a $5,000 reward for any information that might lead to this young man's whereabouts
2: but it hurts it takes the breath out of me it's kind of like you just up and vanished now, i just want some answers i don't know where i don't care where they come from i don't you know i want to know we all need to know where where he is how he's doing i'm never going to give up
1: there's one thread that ties all these cases together really is what can people do who are watching
3: well mention frederick workman too any law enforcement agency if you even have the tiniest bit of information that can help this family have some closure.
1: Linda Cook, thank you for this report. As all of these stories you've been doing about the vanished QC people, now we have all this information and the other cases that Linda's covered so far on our website. That's com. We certainly encourage you to go there, read more about all of these stories, and share them to your social media accounts. Just getting them out there could help bring these families answers they've been waiting for years
0: in some of these cases. So as I said, I first met Mike uh, three or four years ago, and uh, at the time, and he may still do it, at the time, on the anniversary of his son's disappearance, Mike would pass out flyers throughout the community to remind people to be on the lookout for his son. And, uh, and it was on a day like that that I first met Mike. Mike is a professing Christian. Um, I have communicated the gospel multiple times to Mike, Um, He has stopped to talk to me many times. Uh, He has stopped for counsel. Um, He has stopped for a hug uh, to give and to receive a hug. He's been to the church uh, a few times now. and, uh, And I saw him again just yesterday afternoon, only hours after reading this story in a pastor's sketches, fixed despair, just hours after reading this last a couple of paragraphs that impacted me so much. And here's how the interaction with Mike went. Mike, is that a new car? Is that a new car? Oh, just I don't remember seeing you in that one. Hey, where you been, man? We've been missing you. What's that? Oh, well, when you're having a rough time, being around being around the people of God is where you need to be, man. Okay, I love you, Mike. What's that? Dad? Praise the Lord. Lord. Praise the, the Lord. Is that a beer or something? I love you, Mike. I love you, brother. So what's going? So what's going on? So what's going on? Why is? Why are things so rough right now? What's going on?
2: Huh? Well, just a holiday coming. That's our anniversary. Yeah. Our an anniversary. That's tough. It's gonna be tough for a while. That, but I know where she left. I mean, it ain't no secret. She's up there, she, I mean, rejoicing, having a good old time.
0: So, then what should you be doing? Same thing, <laughs> right?
2: Rejoicing, right? Yeah, yeah
0: because yeah. if you believe that that's where she is, right, and I'm certainly not going to argue that point, God knows. Yeah, but if you believe, Mike, that's where she is, then yeah. for you. Now, I understand the pain, I understand the sorrow. I've had loss in my life too. Well, I know, I know. But Mike, for you to wallow in that place of despair is to tell God there's no hope in you.
2: Yeah, I don't
0: that's do what that. you're saying to the Lord. Yeah. God, there is no hope in you.
2: Yeah.
0: While you're while you're believing that she has found hope in him. Do do you see how contradictory that is? Yeah, it is. So, brother, repent. Repent of that thinking. Find your hope in Christ. That's where your hope is. Your hope hope is not going to be in a picture. Your hope's not going to be in a candle. Your hope's not going to be in a holiday, Mike. Your hope is in Christ. Christ is the only cure for despair. Everything else is a band-aid. Christ is the only cure for despair.
2: I've been going to church. I've been over at the Word of Life, but... No, I'm kind of bouncing back and forth. Yeah, you
0: got to stop bouncing. Wherever yeah. you land, yeah. right? Right? Not a sales pitch for my church. Wherever you land, you got to stop bouncing.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay? Because because the church isn't a, the church isn't Walmart. Yeah, and right. if they don't have what you want, then you go over to Home Depot or you go over to Best Buy right. or, or you right. go to Hy-Vee. That's not the church. No. It's not no. the church. No. You got to find a home. You got to stay there. You got to submit to the leadership of that church. And you got to let the people of God minister to you. Not on a drive by, not on a hit and run where you slide in the back and maybe people know you're there and maybe people right. don't know you're there. Right. You need to be in a place where if you're not there, the people of God are going, Where's Mike? Yeah. Where's you guys, Mike? You, you guys have probably been saying that. Where'd he go? Well, it, well yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, Mike. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. Now, like tomorrow I'm going to work 4 to 2.30 I'm finally getting back to my overtime hours I hurt myself again Oh. so now I'm finally getting back and a guy called me up the other day and he goes hey he goes man he goes I want to know if you I didn't, he goes what time you worked on Friday at 4 to 2.30 he goes will you come to Chicago for me and then I thought yeah what's going on my dad passed last week you no know, he, he his dad thought highly of me he said, yeah i'll
0: be there so mike how can you with any integrity give anyone else hope and comfort when I'm, you're not finding it yourself in christ i know i'm trying right oh okay stop trying and do it yeah get stop trying start trusting yeah start right. trusting Start trusting Mike. Mike. I'm not mad at you. I know. I love you, man. I care about you. I yeah. want I want God's very best for you, and that is only Christ.
2: That's right. That's only Christ. And I believe that. I believe that.
0: Then live as though you believe that, Mike. I'm, I, I'm not shut- to earn his love, not to keep his love, shutt- but live as though you believe that, yeah.
2: Mike. I'm shutting down all the stuff that I have on the table. I'm finally shoving that away. Okay. No. look
0: it, it doesn't mean you don't have memories it doesn't mean oh, know, you don't remember yeah, her with yeah. fondness I'm not suggesting that at all but Mike for you to continue to despair you're actually propping her up as an idol you want her more than you want the Christ who can actually bring you comfort he's, he's, yeah. then live that way yeah, a, right. live that way live as though Christ is your all in all Mike That's right. live as though Christ is your all in all Okay. Right, I'm, I'm gonna do that. All right, man. I'm glad to see you.
2: I, I'm. I'm sorry. I kind of. Uh, that's you, your daughter's husband?
0: Yeah. That's, yeah. That's Donnie. You want to say hi?
2: Oh yeah. I'm gonna do that. Good. And, and
0: and you don't owe me any apologies, Mike. You haven't done anything to me. Yeah, I, I, know. I just want to encourage you. Yeah,
2: yeah. What's up, man? What's going on, How you doing, Mike? Good. Good. No, that's good. Yeah. I'll be back Sunday.
0: I'll look forward to it.
2: I see you shave. Huh? I see you shave.
0: You gotta shave hey, too. We,
2: you, you. I see you shave. look younger. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, you gotta take that off.
0: <laughs> no, I, uh, my yeah. my granddaughter loves to just yeah. hang on to it for dear life. You we love take watching. Yours off too. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Settle down. Settle down now. <laughs> All right, buddy. I'll see you soon. All right. God Sunday. bless you, Mike. I love uh, you, man. Yeah, I look forward you. to seeing you. Yeah. All right, brother. You have a great night. Be careful on the road. Okay. As I talked to Mike, these words rang in my head. The gospel is addressed to hope. Despair must always be deaf to it. Entire despair is incompatible with seeking God. Despair cannot pray. The last effort of the devil seems to be to drive sinners to despair. We are saved by hope, says the apostle. Few errors are harmless. None are safe. Truth is never injurious. And I can have no sympathy with those ministers who think an error may do an impenitent sinner good. Tricks are not truth. As you saw in my interaction with Mike, I I called him to repentance. I called him to repentance for professing Christ, for believing his uh, his now-deceased, estranged wife is in heaven, and for wallowing in despair. I called him to repent of that. I explained to him that despair and hope cannot occupy the same place at the same time, and that he was making an idol of his wife, and he was telling God, there is no hope in you. Those are very strong words, but I tried to do it with love, and I think Mike saw that, and I hope you could hear that, in my interaction with Mike. And I do hope to see Mike again on Sunday. Maybe you're fixed in a place of despair. Your despair can be fixed, but only in Christ. But only by putting your faith and your trust in Christ and in Christ alone. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, Yet you are mired in despair. You are calling God a liar. You are telling him that there is no hope to be found in him. Repent. Repent. And find your hope in Christ. Well, I want to thank you for joining me for this edition Of a pastor's sketches. If this has been an encouragement to you, um, if you're watching the video presentation of this episode, I ask that you would leave a comment below in the comment section below. You can email me directly at the lawman, T H E L A W M A N, the lawman104 at gmail.com. The lawman. 104 at gmail.com. Are you struggling with despair? I would like to help you. And I know I can help you. Because I know the one from whom hope comes. Jesus Christ. Until next time, friends, God bless. Thank you for joining me. And I'll see you soon.